Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. We're talking about Ukraine this week, where military conflict has disrupted the lives of millions of citizens since the Russian invasion of February 2022. And if you're wondering what the war has to do with the business of philosophy, then here's a thought. The war brings you very close to the possible end of your existence. And this is something where philosophy starts from. Philosophy starts from on the point when you understand very clearly, not theoretically, not analytically, but very I mean, emotionally, physically, bodily, that your life can end tomorrow. And this is something that, interestingly enough, not only encourages thinking, but maybe is the only source of a true thinking. That's Vladimir Yermolenko, a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist who teaches at Kiev Mohila Academy, which is the oldest university in Ukraine. Vladimir is also editor-in-chief at Ukraine World, which is an English-language multimedia project that produces news and analysis and podcasts about everything that's happening in Ukraine. And if you're following events in Ukraine, then Ukraine World really needs to be your go-to online resource. It's just wonderful, and we'll put a link on the Philosopher's Zone website. I'm also joined this week by Aaron Wendland, a Canadian philosopher who's Vision Fellow in Public Philosophy at King's College London. He's also Philosophy Editor at The New Statesman. And Aaron is currently engaged in establishing a Centre for Civic Engagement at Kiev Mohila Academy, which is going to provide support for academic and civic institutions in Ukraine. And we'll be talking more about that in a few moments. But first, I began this conversation by asking Vladimir Yermolenko about life and conditions in Kiev right now. Life in Kiev right now is pretty close to being normal. So when you hear about the war, when you see the war on, on TV screens, uh, it sometimes you have the impression that everything is destroyed, there are no longer cities, there is nothing is going on with a peaceful life. That's an illusion. There is a place for normality during the war. So Kyiv is full of life, is vibrant. Uh, most of the people who left the city, many people at least, who left the city in late February last year or early March have come back. So there are many people in, in, in the city. Traffic jams, uh, good restaurants, cultural life, everything is here. But every day or every week, uh, there are air raid sirens and missiles are flying over the city or hitting the targets in the city, in the Kiev region where I'm living. Now, I'm living in Brovary. You probably know already the name of the place uh, due to the helicopter crash, which happened just uh, very, very close to us, to where we live, some several hundreds meters. Everybody has his or her friends, his or her relatives on the front line. People are donating money. People are going to the front line with volunteer trips. So this is kind of a combination of a peaceful life and, uh, and of course, being engaged into the war. Vladimir, broadly speaking, how would you say scholarship and the academy within Ukraine has been affected by the war? So we had several big hits on our academy. The first was, of course, uh, the COVID pandemic, as like everybody, with everybody. But the second was the war. And uh, well, while the COVID pandemics actually destroyed the offline education, so we no longer went to the classes to meet our students uh, physically, 
the war has only confirmed that uh, we don't have classes offline. We only do it online in, in Mahila Academy. Our students are scattered around the world. Many of them are in Ukraine, but many of them are also abroad. On the one hand, it gives certain mobility because it saves time on, on trips. And I, I live in a suburb, so it takes me one hour and a half to get to the university. But on the other hand, of course, I can say that there is a certain number of my students which I haven't seen physically in my life ever and probably will never see. But at, at the same time, I mean, university is primarily a community. So it's not something you get knowledge from. You, get, you can get knowledge from podcasts, from uh, online education, from books, whatever. You need community to be a genuine university. And this sense of community is, of course, uh, is now weakening, unfortunately. We hope that it will come back, of course. The second issue is that many students or former students are on the front line. And unfortunately... We get regular news that uh, they are being killed. One of my students, Mikola Rachok, a, a prominent, very bright personality, was recently killed on the front line. I think uh, in, with Kiev Mahila Academy, we, when you enter the first building, you, you, you see the, the pictures of those people who, who were killed. And unfortunately, this number becomes bigger, of course, uh, every week. And the third thing is that many Ukrainians who have academic ambitions, academic background, they have left the country, specifically women. Basically, like 90% of them are, are young women with their kids. 90% um, of all the refugees from Ukraine, maybe 95% are young women with kids. And this is also, this has positive aspect and negative aspect. Negative aspect is they they left the country. We don't know whether they will come back. And I'm especially worried about the young generation. According to some estimates, up to 50% of Ukrainian school children have, are now abroad or in, in, in other places than their homes, hometowns. But on the other hand, of course, this is kind of opens up uh, the world for Ukrainian scholars, young scholars. It, it gives an, us an opportunity for these people to talk about Ukraine uh, in countries where they are. And this is probably also filling the gap of this void of these blind spots uh, about Ukraine, which, which many in the world had in the past years. Yeah, I, I guess it's worth mentioning as well that I, I read that something like 21 Ukrainian institutions of higher education have been destroyed, while 171 have been damaged. Aaron, given all that and, and given what Vladimir has been saying, can you tell me about your plans for the Centre for Civic Engagement and how that project aims to address the needs of the Ukrainian Academy? Sure. I spent the summer in Ukraine doing some reporting for the Toronto Star and I was commissioned to write a story about the state of higher education in Ukraine. And when I started doing research into this, I realized that it's, of course, very challenging. Um, something like 7,000 academics had left the country at that point. Uh, a number of institutions had been bombed and destroyed. And prior to going to Ukraine, I had thought, okay, what can we do to help people outside Ukraine. Um, there were all these refugees, Western universities were doing things to support Ukrainians who had left the country. But it became very clear that there was a need to support the Ukrainian Academy in Ukraine, in some ways to prevent the brain drain, limit the brain drain from the country. 
And yeah, I started interviewing various rectors and deans. And when I was at Kiev Mohila Academy, I saw that there were all kinds of academics doing all kinds of interesting work in Kiev to help keep civil society sort of functioning. And they were doing so on very limited resources. Um, so, for example, there's an art and culture center there, and they effectively turned into a center for civic engagement in Kiev, where the students were doing volunteer work, visiting um, elderly people whose children were either fighting on the front line or who had left the country. They were stalking bomb shelters. They were helping wounded veterans. Uh, the university was engaging in all kinds of public outreach, so education programs for um, members of the public who might not understand the difference between, say, Ukrainian and Russian history and how they relate to each other. Um, there were psychologists offering therapy to people who had experienced uh, the Russian invasion in Bucha. There are computer scientists and media people who are doing things to fight Russian misinformation. Um, and then there's work like Vladimir is doing, uh, educating the international community about Ukraine. And, and all of these academics in Ukraine are doing this work with very limited resources. So I thought, oh, maybe I can do something to help these Ukrainians who are working in Ukraine and who have very little international support compared to the Ukrainians who have left the country. In some ways, the Ukrainians who have left the country and are at the University of Toronto or at the University of Chicago, it is, of course, difficult to leave home, but they're safer than the academics working in Ukraine. So I thought, let's do something to help them in Ukraine. Um, and so we're creating a center for civic engagement to support the work that Ukrainians are doing now. And the idea is also um, to support a bunch of Ukrainian academics who've been displaced within the country. So particularly in the east of the country, a number of universities have been bombed. Um, people have been forced to leave Kharkiv and Mykolaiv and places like this. And oftentimes they've left the country. Um, but a lot of them are still in Ukraine, and there seem to be some gaps in teaching because of the number of academic refugees. So we want to create a fellowship program that can support Ukrainian academics who stay in Ukraine and who can work at universities that are still functioning in Ukraine instead of leaving and facilitating the brain drain. Um, the best way to ensure teaching for Ukrainian students in Ukraine is to keep Ukrainian academics there. So we're trying to do that. I mean, we often talk on this program about the practical uses of philosophy. And here, I guess we're seeing a wonderful commitment on the part of philosophers to help out where it's needed. But I want to ask you, to what extent or in what ways does what you're doing here stem from a particular philosophical commitment or, or a particular ethical tradition that you can identify? Yeah, I, I guess my background is mostly in post-Kantian or continental philosophy. So there are some key figures there that influence the way I think about these things and the work I'm currently doing in Ukraine. I guess it starts with Levinas and the idea that ethics is sort of infinitely demanding. And by infinitely demanding, we just need to look around. There's an earthquake that happened recently in Turkey that's had a massive impact on Syrians in Turkey and people in Turkey. There's a war in Ukraine. There's fighting in Ethiopia. There's homelessness in North American cities. Um, my children and friends need help and support. So there's all these demands placed on 
our capacity for action. And what Levinas teaches us and people in the continental tradition suggest is that although there are infinite demands on our ability to act ethically, we are finite human beings. And so we have to respond in particular situations to the problems that are presented to us in these particular situations. There's only a limited amount of things that we can do. Um, and Kierkegaard and Heidegger and other existentialists sort of point out the, the sort of limits on our capacity for action. And in my case, I think everybody's sort of sphere to act ethically is tied to their particular historical situation. This is what Heidegger calls human beings being thrown into the world. I suppose if, if you're an analytic philosopher, it's something like Jonathan Dancy's moral particularism, right? That ethical action happens in a concrete particular space. I don't know what's good for the universe as a whole. I'm not God. I don't have this God's eyes view of what's good for everything. But I find myself in a particular situation, I can see a certain need, and I can do something to address that need. And this is how I um, decided to start working with the Ukrainian Academy and trying to generate support for them in their time of need. Vladimir, what about you? I've, I've been listening to your Ukraine World podcast, and the focus there has been quite understandably on the day-to-day -day of what's happening in Ukraine and an analysis of that. But as a philosopher, what intellectual traditions or, or writers are you reflecting on and, and perhaps drawing on at the moment in the work that you're doing? Obviously, what Aaron was saying, I think it's it's very close to myself as well. Where while I'm I'm kind of a critical of a of a basic existentialism, not of Levinas, as Aaron was saying, but of people like Sartre, because I, I do think that Sartre was wrong when he was saying that we are based upon certain nothingness and we kind of create from nothing. I think it is wrong to believe in that. I think uh, we are all uh, kind of a dependent on a certain moment of time, on a certain history, and our, our liberty is very, very much limited. And uh, therefore, we need to find those places, those toposes, those moments when we can act with liberty, but at the same time, we can re-engage with our past and, and re-engage with, with something that is that has roots. I think that human beings are also botanic creatures. They are not creating from nothingness. They, are, they have roots. They, they, have, they belong to something. And this belonging is also belonging to the land, belonging to, to your country, to your nation, to your, to your tradition. And this is very interesting how, for example, Ukrainian intellectual tradition doesn't really find a big uh, conflict between modernity and tradition between the future and the past. This is something I think that is should be very helpful in the 21st century, not only for Ukrainians, but for other peoples in the world, because we see one of the greatest problems today, ideological problems, is actually the battle between the future and the past. People are uh, calling themselves progressives, are trying to deny the, the past, and people who are calling themselves conservatives are trying to deny the future and, and, and think in, in, in nostalgic terms. I think basically our time structures of human beings actually demands from us to to combine both and to find how you can dig deep into the past and, and re-engage, re-modernize, re-actualize those things that probably your grandparents were doing, your grand-grand-grandparents were doing, or the classics of philosophy for that matter, or the classics of literature. Therefore, in my teaching, I really base upon 
the very classical texts. So my students are reading Aeschylus, or they're reading Shakespeare, or they're reading Montaigne, or they're reading uh, Don Quixote, or they're reading classics of the Ukrainian literature. I think it's very, very important to, to have this sentiment of a big intellectual tradition, human intellectual tradition, and, and to be in, in, in the dialogue with, with all those classics. The second thing I think for me it's very important to think about in terms of philosophy of history. Uh, philosophy of history is something that is discredited in the 20th century. Why? Because I think starting from the uh, post-World War uh, topic, it was kind of a... Philosophies of history was seen with suspicion because they were utilized by the totalitarianisms, by, by fascisms, by communisms. And in that respect, this criticism was correct. Uh, if we consider philosophy of history as a certain confidence that we know what the future will look like, it's of course bullshit, sorry to pronounce that in this podcast. So we don't know what the future will look like. But what I'm interested in philosophy of history is precisely the readiness for something new, the readiness for something unexpected. We, are some, we sometimes are confident that the structures that we are accustomed to will repeat them themselves over and over again. And I think Ukrainian story right now shows that history is back. So in a way, it's interesting that we are living in a time when history is back. And uh, of course, it's, it's totally different from what Fukuyama has predicted. But in a way, interestingly enough, it's precisely during the moment when Fukuyama uh, diagnosed uh, the end of history in our region history has begun because we had the end of history about in the 70s and 80s now nothing was happening except for the war in Afghanistan and then Chernobyl but the real history started in actually 91 and uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and all the consequences of that because what we're witnessing now is Russia's attempt to undo the collapse of the Soviet Union. And therefore, I'm giving uh, my students dramas, the classical dramas, uh, Shakespeare, Lesio Ukrainka, Aeschylus, and uh, Racine, and all the rest. Why? Because I do think that dramas, if we look at history of literature, we understand that dramatic art uh, has its peaks at the times of of history. When old structures collapse and we don't know what the new structures will look like, and when time doesn't wait, when time is very quick, when every day, as Derrida said, there is a new apocalypse and the, the old world is collapsing, the new world is being born, and then the next day it's the next story. And uh, in that way, it's not the 20th century anymore, because 20th century was very ahistorical. Uh, uh, I mean, the second half of the 20th century, it was thinking in terms of structures, then post-structures, then uh, it was thinking in terms of space rather than time. And I think we are coming back to, to this uh, thinking when we need to think in terms of time. And therefore, people that interest me are actually people who had very, very dramatic thinking about time. And not the, those old philosophers of history like Hegel or even Heidegger, but precisely the, the writers, the writers that wrote good dramas. They had a fantastic sense of history, I think. On RN, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and I'm talking this week with Ukrainian philosopher Vladimir Yermolenko and Aaron Wendland, who's a fellow in philosophy at King's College London. 
You can find out more on the Philosopher's Zone website and you can follow us via the ABC Listen app. So, Vladimir, in preparing this interview, I was reading about the concept of Hromada, which is central to Ukrainian political philosophy, but also central to the Ukrainian resistance in this conflict. Can you tell me about Hromada, what it means and how it's shaping events in Ukraine right now? Yeah, so Hromada means community and uh, it's now a very popular concept in Ukraine. It has always been a very popular concept in Ukraine. Uh, a person who theorized this in the 19th century it was Mikhail Drahomanov, one of the key Ukrainian political thinkers. Uh, so what he was saying actually is that politics comes not from above, like a top-down, but from below, bottom-up, and uh, politics is when people get together and form a community, and then communities get together and form wider communities, and then these communities get together and form, form wider communities, etc., etc. In the concept of the Hromada, it's very important then that there is something natural in politics, that there is something evolutionary in politics, and that you cannot really force people to make communities. The real community are kind of organic natural process when people get together and then they decide to live together. And then the state is a kind of a, what how Drahmano was saying, is community of the communities. And then the international organizations like the EU, or UN even is a community of community of communities. And this is very important because in this sense, we see that the state is actually based on the very grassroots things, on local communities, on the sense of belonging, rather than on top-down decrees. And I do think that Russia is rather structured like top-down decrees. Russia is rather structured as a monarchic state in which the monarch plays a key role. And when you remove the monarch, everything collapses. And Ukraine in this sense is completely different, is is based upon this bottom-up idea, and therefore the local identities in Ukraine are so important. And therefore, actually, you saw Hromadas on the 24th of February everywhere when you saw suddenly these numerous checkpoints in every village, Ukrainian village, just growing by themselves. People started without any order, without any any decree from above without any instruction, they just started acting. Build the checkpoints, organizing self-defense units, um, etc. And maybe this is the metaphor for true democracy. Aaron, given what we've just heard Vladimir talking about, there's been a lot of anguished analysis over the past few years about what's going wrong in Europe and how the flame of liberal democracy is beginning to get fainter and weaker and nobody seems to know what to do about the rise of extreme right-wing politics. And of course, Putin's aggression in Ukraine has just deepened the anxiety. Do you think, Aaron, that Europe has something to learn from Ukraine at the moment, either from its predicament or from its resistance to that predicament? Absolutely. I think perhaps people in Europe and Western Europe in particular, and even in North America, I'm happy to extend this to Australia and New Zealand too, is we've perhaps taken our institutions for granted and we've got comfortable and thought that they aren't something that we really have to defend and be vigilant over. And then you need to look at Ukraine and see that 
these institutions are something that people are willing to fight and die for. And it's inspiring. It's an instance of sort of hope that these liberal democratic values are not guaranteed. They are something we need to protect, to defend, to constantly maintain. And I think Ukraine can serve as inspiration in this regard, uh, that people are willing to fight and die for the ideas that we take for granted in certain places. And we shouldn't be complacent because, as we've seen with the Trump era and the Trump administration and the threats that you mentioned, um, these can slip away at any moment. And um, to see people fighting for liberal democracy uh, should remind us that these are always at risk. This gets back to the point of history, that history is a cycle where regimes and different power structures jockey for control of particular people and particular nations, and we can't take any one of them for granted. But if Ukraine is in for a long, drawn-out conflict, as seems to be the prospect, we could perhaps assume that the primary focus of Ukrainian life is going to be the war. Um, The chief preoccupation of every Ukrainian citizen is going to be security. I imagine there's likely to be strong governmental focus on defence and economics and technology and this kind of thing. If that's, I mean, if, if I'm correct in supposing that, what short to medium term hopes do you have for the flourishing in Ukraine of humanities education and ideas and philosophy and all those things that we tend to turn our minds to when we're not fighting for survival. Is that all going to have to wait, do you think? Not at all. I mean, this was the sort of eye-opening experience for me when I was in Ukraine over the summer, was just how important having a robust and flourishing civil society was for both the morale of Ukrainians, but also for the war effort. Um, you know, if life is functioning, as Vladimir said, somewhat normally, that ensures supplies get to the front line, that ensures people when they have a break from the front line, they go back to their families and they have a healthy environment to be in uh, and spend time with when they go back uh, to the front line. Um, and in some ways, when I was in Ukraine, everybody was involved in the war effort, whether they were a waitress or a taxi driver or a university professor. They thought doing their everyday job was part of protecting Ukraine. And of course, they were donating some money to the army and supporting people. But they themselves saw keeping a robust and functioning civil society as key to both maintaining the war effort, but also for the future of the country. Uh, in terms of, I guess you were asking about ideas and the, the prospect of the humanities. And it seems to me that Vladimir's uh, point that every day is an apocalypse is sort of apt because it creates this possibility for new thinking. One of the things I noticed when I was there is that, you know, a building gets bombed, rebuilding starts immediately. Rebuilding doesn't happen two years from now or four years from now. We need to think, what do we do now? What do we do next? And this is the perfect context for ideas and bold thinking and new visions. And and so I think it's a right place for deep, serious, philosophical thinking. And the Ukrainians are engaging it as, you know, Vladimir, I think, is an excellent example of this. And it's a real opportunity to rethink our past and what the future might hold in store. And the humanities are obviously important for that. Well, Vladimir, I'll put the same question to you, the survival of the humanities and the survival of a robust civic society in Ukraine over the next however long it's going to have to be. What are the challenges there, do you think? 
I do think that this is a time for a new thinking in Ukraine. I'm in dialogue with the uh, with the humanities tradition, primarily European tradition. I'm I'm really feeling myself and my my fellows are feeling ourselves as a kind of on the same level with the classics, and therefore we we were not afraid of of going into direct clash with the classics, like starting from Sartre and going back. I don't know Heidegger and. Uh, Plato, Aristotle. I mean, these people are not just, you know, bronze stages for us. It's, it's just the, the people with whom we, we have the conversation. At the same time, I do feel that there is a demand of Ukrainians for culture, because culture can do two things. It can tell the truth, much sometimes even much better than, than just reporting, just news, etc. It can really tell the truth emotionally. And this is what's happening with Ukrainian music, with Ukrainian cinema, with Ukrainian visual arts. And secondly, it can uh, provide consolation. And this is something that, for example, people are reacting to another podcast that we are doing with my wife, which is in Ukrainian, which is about culture, which is called Kult Podcast. And uh, we were surprised then uh, that after the full-scale invasion, we kind of halted this podcast. We thought it was not relevant anymore. But then we, after half of the year, we renewed it and uh, our audience increased dramatically. I mean, it doubled or tripled on some episodes and people were writing to us even before this full-scale invasion. But now they're writing and saying that, look, it provides so much consolation to us because it kind of opens up the horizon we need to think about also different things, not only about the war, not just to close our eyes on the war, but I think if we think about other things as well, we kind of uh, have a capacity to think and to act better uh, in terms of, of the war as well. In Pen Ukraine, we started a small community gatherings in which we are reading poetry and, and playing music. And we made the first thing last week and, and, and the hall was full of people, despite the fact that it is not a very comfortable place to find. Uh, so we are a little bit far from the metro station. So people came just to listen to poetry, to read their own poetry, to play the music, to jam. The same, even more incredible, is that, for example, Kharkiv, that mentioned by Aaron, Kharkiv is the second largest Ukrainian city, 40 kilometers from the Russian border, heavily shelled by the Russians. And uh, in Kharkiv, there is a vibrant cultural life in the underground. Co uh, rock concerts in the, in the metro station underground, exhibitions, discussions, poetry readings, music concerts, etc. So I do think that there is something really existential because when the war brings you very close to the possible end of your existence, and this is something where philosophy starts from. Philosophy starts from on the point when you understand very clearly, not theoretically, not analytically, but very, I mean, emotionally, physically, bodily, that your life can and tomorrow. And this is something that, interestingly enough, not only encourages thinking, but maybe is the only source of a true thinking, this, this experience. I have the metaphor that we are living in the time of a new Baroque. Baroque in the sense of those chiaroscuro paintings of the classics of the Baroque painting of Caravaggio, Rembrandt, Van Horhorst, Georges de la Tour, etc. So we start from 
the fact that we are living in the darkness and then there is probably some light the divine light or the human light and and this is what what we might call truth and this truth is rare is is in deficit is not something that available and it's not something that you can take for granted as Aron says so there is this truth is something that you need to seek that you need to fight for that you need to, to catch when it when it appears and uh, yeah maybe this is a starting point of, uh, of reflection Vladimir Yermolenko, Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and editor-in-chief at Ukraine World, which is a wonderful online resource for news and analysis of everything that's happening in Ukraine right now. And he was joined there by Aaron Wendland, Vision Fellow in Philosophy at King's College London and currently engaged in establishing a Centre for Civic Engagement at Kyiv Mohila Academy in Ukraine. And as part of that project, Aaron is organizing a fundraiser, a benefit conference for Ukraine. It's titled, What Good is Philosophy? The Role of the Academy in a Time of Crisis. The conference is going to be broadcast via YouTube from the 17th to the 19th of March, and it features a stellar lineup of speakers. There's a link on the Philosopher's Zone website, and I recommend you checking it out. It's going to be really something special. And that's it from me, David Rutledge, for another week. This has been The Philosopher's Zone, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now.